On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. The front pages are still quite RTE dominated. It's not blanket wall to wall, and there will be other matters to be discussed in the next hour as we go through um, the Sunday papers. But it is fair to say that there is a, a Montrose theme uh, to what's making the front pages. Uh, Sunday Times this morning. RTE accounts reveal that 2.3 million euro was paid in termination benefits to key managers over four years as part of an external as an external review focuses on an exit package given to Breda O'Keefe, the former chief financial officer, in 2020. Uh, this obviously follows the news this week that Kevin Backhurst, the new director general, has now commissioned and yet another external financial review into the circumstances of some of the major payoffs for senior executives in the last number of years. We're told today in the Sunday Times that exit deals for unidentified executive management who reported to the DG are recorded as being worth €700,000 for 2017, €600,000 for 2018, €600,000 again for 2019 and €400,000 for 2020 when Breed O'Keefe left the national broadcaster after 17 years. Those figures do not include post-employment pension benefits. Uh, details of those payments are contained in Ortiz's annual report uh, for the four-year period. Um, this obviously has all been brought to further light by Brida O'Keefe, the former Chief Financial Officer, attending one of the Oireachtas committees a couple of weeks ago. She told the Public Accounts Committee that she had left RTE under what she called a voluntary restructuring programme and then declined to reappear before the Oireachtas Committee last week. That, of course, has raised some eyebrows because of the idea that ordinarily redundancy programmes are only accepted uh, when people are leaving the organisation and their job is not being replaced. But obviously, in Breed O'Keefe's place, RTE does still have uh, a Chief Financial Officer, Richard Collins, who has been appearing before those dual committees. Also on the front page of the Sunday Times, by the way, um, a long-running dispute between a Dublin solicitor who wrongly accused her multimillionaire neighbour of cutting down and removing mature trees in the garden of a Rathgar home has ended after racking up legal costs in the region of €800,000. Sheila Cooney, the widow of a late barrister, Gareth Cooney, had alleged that her neighbour, businessman Alan Holmes, had instructed workmen to cut down holly, oak and beech trees in the garden of her former home in Rathgar. Uh, The trees overlooked her rear garden. The two sides reached an out-of-court settlement last month after Cooney withdrew her allegations, which had been due to be heard in the High Court. Cooney agreed to pay Holmes a substantial legal fees as part of the settlement. The costs are estimated to have reached €800,000. Thousand euro. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Independent. Actually, let's do the non RTE story very briefly on the front of the Sunday Independent. John Delaney, um, who you might remember as being the one time executive vice president of the Football Association of Ireland, um, is recruiting Irish contacts to become directors of brass plate companies for overseas businesses involved in selling cannabis oil and other e commerce schemes for €3,000 a year. He has boasted that it is, quote, money for jam. Uh, the Sunday Independent, uh, this, of course, uh, as you might expect, written by Mark Tighe this morning. Sunday Independent has established that uh, Delaney has helped to recruit some 10 Irish people as directors for companies that want to sell goods and process payments from bank accounts and companies based in Ireland. An undercover reporter was told by Delaney's British associate that once approved, the only requirement to receive the €3,000 is to be available to sign documents that will be screened by the UK company. Uh, that's the sidebar story. The main story in the Sun Independent is, of course, again, RTE related. Um, RTE was under instruction from the Department of Public Expenditure to carry out financial reviews of two voluntary redundancy programmes, but failed to do so, the Sun Independent can reveal. Pascal Dunhu's department approved two voluntary redundancy schemes as part of the cost-cutting measures within RTE, but it did stipulate that the broadcaster would have to carry out detailed financial reviews once each scheme had closed. Neither of them obviously, has apparently occurred. Um, The front page of the Mail on Sunday, uh, they have taken the angle of a new opinion poll that they've commissioned uh, from Amoric Research. 
Um, that has found that almost one in two people believe that Ryan Tuberty should be allowed back on the air to present his RTE radio programme. Um, this is the country's first opinion poll on the crisis since Tuberty and his agent Noel Kelly appeared before two Oireachtas committees this week. 47% of people say the Late Late Show host, former Late Late Show host, should be allowed to return to RTE. However, 37% of people uh, believe, don't believe that RTE should allow him to resume his job, which goes to highlight uh, some of the dilemmas faced by Kevin Backhurst. Uh, and finally for now, um, in the one front page uh, that doesn't carry anything central on RTE, and we will discuss this in more detail a little bit later this hour because this is pretty significant, uh, Spending Minister Pascal Donoghue has strongly rebuked Stephen Donnelly over his handling of the health budget, warning that a €2 billion Euro potential overrun marks an unprecedented level of financial risk to the state. It comes as Donnelly has also written to Donoghue requesting an additional €6.3 billion Euro in capital funding between now and 2028 if government health goals are to be achieved. That is nearly double the projected capital allocation for that period. Uh, the Business Post has accessed terse letters, as they call it, under Freedom of Information. They show that Pascal Donoghue first wrote to Donnelly at the end of March, expressing some concerns over a potential uh, financial overrun for the HSE. Donoghue said it was difficult to align the projected overspend with the HSE's legal requirement to stick to its agreed budget. Um, that is your potted tour of what's on the front pages of this morning's papers. Joined in studio uh, to discuss those stories and more by journalist and author Valerie Cox and by John Lee, who is executive editor at the Daily Mail Group, the publishers of the Irish Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. Um, good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's just get the RT stuff kind of done and dusted out of the way early, John. And I know, John, that you have written... Um, a column inside the Mail on Sunday which we'll get to in just a couple of minutes and, and you were telling us off air you've already had some some curious inquiries from Montrose about some of the information you have this morning. Um, first of all, just what jumps out at you from the extent of all today's RT coverage in the papers? Uh, I, what jumps out at me, I sense a bit of fatigue from Gavin Riley uh, with RT with his review there which I suppose you know what, might be representing the views well, of some of the public. One thing I'm actually mindful is of is that I think people within the media love to talk about the future and the nature of the media but I suspect that a lot of people outside the media find it a lot less tar- uh, interesting than those who are within the bubble. So I'm trying to project some of their fatigue maybe. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure a lot of us are. Um, I, I'm not I'm not questioning your articulation of that because, you know, um, ultimately commercial organisations will live or die on, on whether they got it right or not. RTE sometimes doesn't have to pay that, um, pay that piper. So we, we have a poll today. Uh, um, we... we try and push it on in some form I guess um, post the appearance of the the big star Ryan Tuberty mm. um, there are some interesting figures there do people want to back you you you, you, you refer to them in your intro um, 37% uh, don't think he should come back 47% think he should but what struck me is the most interesting figure uh, in, in the poll was that 59% of people don't believe trust in RTE can be restored. Now, whatever your belief in polls or otherwise uh, is, that's, an, that's, a, that's a big problem mm. for a state broadcaster that essentially they've lost the trust of the public. 60% of people virtually don't, want, uh, don't, don't believe you should be trusted to run our publicly funded uh, public service broadcasting, um, that organ, organisation. Ally that to what some of the things Leo Varadkar said in a wonderfully timed uh, housing press conference on Tuesday, right in the midst of um, <laughs> Ryan Tuberty's uh, testimony to the PAC. 
if you were to analyse what Leo Varadkar said in that um, post a, a splash mm. we had last Sunday you, about you might remind our listeners team. what exactly he had said because so many of them might have been paying attention to what was going on in, in the dungeons of LH2000 they might not know what Leo Varadkar actually just, said I was you? along there watching him because uh, um, we had a front page on Sunday which was talking to um, various cabinet figures about the future of RT with the rustling of papers I'm going I do have it I do have his quotes in the piece I wrote but um, That's the sound of John he, tried to find his own piece in today's uh, Mail on Sunday. I think we'll, we'll, we'll do us a favour and we'll try to find your, your page. I found well. it here, yeah. There he he said, um, was asked about a potential bailout for RT. Now, throughout, um, the government has answered questions in the sense of, well, RT hasn't asked for a bailout yet, but they actually have because they yeah. were long looking for 35 million early this year. Um, and he's, he, he said um, that... Yeah, listen, you know, people have been to us before looking for um, looking for um, bailouts, um, state entities in, so, in some cases. But he has said ba- he has said banks and sporting organisations have looked for bailouts in the past and, and we've given them to them, mm. uh, given them those bailouts. But there have been strict conditions. And the great mystery now is the conditions that are going to be attached to RTE by the state in the future to obtain funding. RTE itself, Moya Doherty and others over a year ago um, spoke about the uh, how the fact the current licence fee system is broken. That yeah. was their that was their words. There were there was a there was a, a number of offers made or proposals made, but last summer, this should be remembered, the Future Media Commission made 50, 50 recommendations to government about the funding of broadcasting in the future. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, about broadcasting in the future. 49 were accepted, one was rejected mm. and that was in the future Licence funding mm. of, uh, of, of RTE and other entities. Uh, that proposal had said that the state would, fun, would, would fundamentally take control of exche- using yeah. exchequer monies to fund RTE. Mm. That was rejected. I understand Department of Finance still um, opposes direct funding from the Exchequer and the government as a compromise wants to see some form of um, public service charge where some of the monies obtained from the public to pay for broadcasting would go not just to RTE, would go to places like News Talk, would go to Virgin and um, some local operations as Mm. well. There's an awful lot to be sorted out between now at the end of the year when it comes to the funding of journalism in this country and principally in relation to RTE. And yeah. I can only see a, va- a vastly diminished RTE in the future yeah. when it comes uh, out of all of that. And uh, we'll talk to you about, about where that might go in a, in a minute. But uh, And Valerie, I know that you've already picked out that big interview that Kevin Backhurst, yeah. the UDG, has done with the Business Post. But just before you, you get into what you found striking about that, John raises the point of um, the government effectively wanting some terms and conditions if there is going to be any financial aid package for RTE, which in truth, all of us in the sector believe is going to be uh, necessary this year because they're going to be squeezed on the licence fee and they're going to be squeezed on commercial income. So they're they're going to need more cash. I'm not sure what T's and C's the government could put on that without it getting into meddling with the editorial functions of RTE, which is a very dangerous Um. territory to get into. I don't think so. I think that they can do it in other ways. There's an interesting piece in the Business Post from Ian Guider this morning and he says what Orchie needs to do is to kill some of the sacred cows and he's talking about things like the Land Bank in Montrose. I mean, it's a lovely place but there's vast, vast areas. Kevin Backhurst himself mentioned that during he did. the did. And there's vast areas of land. I mean, they don't need anything like that. They could easily sell off a lot more and we know it was sold for a lot of money. It was turned into housing and so on. Um, the other thing uh, he's talking about is selling off 2FM. 
Now, that could easily be done without interfering with the editorial content of RTE. That's quite possible. Mm. So, I mean, maybe it's time to tackle those sort of things, those sacred okay. cows. Uh, I mean, Kevin Backhurst, this interview he has in the Business Post, yeah, I thought it was that. very interesting. Um, he was sitting by the window of his new office on the third floor of the administration building, where I've been once. And once. he said... <laughs> 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 we'll maybe ask you during the ad break what it was that you had to go oh, in there for just that once. tell you during the week what it was. Yeah, no. it was um, after the severe weather. I can't remember what year it was. We yeah. were all out in the middle of the night in snow drifts and so on. And they brought us in for lunch in the admin building oh. with the executive that's the only time I've ever been there and the only time I've ever met them. Well, listen, I, I don't want to immediately sort of leap for conclusions, but what does it say that people who might have given a lifetime of service to the public broadcaster might only have ever been in the admin building once and the oh, culture of haves and have-nots that there might be? Yeah, I mean, we're talking ivory towers. We're talking people who did not have a hands-on um, approach mm. to the staff. I mean, the staff really wouldn't know who they were at all, yeah. which anyway, is very bad. So Kevin Backhurst is sitting in his window office on the third <laughs> floor of this aforementioned ivory tower. Well, he's talking to Conal Thomas and he says he doesn't know why D Forbes did the deal. So the questions were, but can he understand why she did it? No. Would he have done the same given the pressure she was under to pay up? No. Then why did she do it? I don't know, but I'd like to hear why. I mean, that's all Kevin Backhurst had to say on it, really. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the... The thing that also interested me was that um, during the time, the um, the payout, the RT payout um, in exit packages to executives, yeah. a lot of staff applied for these exit packages as well mm. and they were turned down. And of course, the other thing, as you mentioned in, at the start, um, you know, when somebody gets a redundancy package, mm. it means that the no job isn't the there anymore. Yeah. You know, it's it's not the person, it's the job. So, you know, to be filling these jobs after somebody leaves, it's actually quite immoral when you're working for an organisation that, it, you know, is so tight on finance. Yeah. Um, John, you mentioned the, the the future of this and actually the general theme of your, your column, which is, I think, on page 26 of the Mail on Sunday, in case we do need to pull it out again. Beside a piece on Barbie. If you, uh, well, look, it takes, yes, it's it's it takes all sorts. It's, it's the Barbenheimer of today's press, <laughs> is that you've got Margot Robbie on one side and John Lee on the other. Um, but you're making the argument the that the, there's no bottom, the, this will only get sorted, this RT soap opera will only end whenever the government does make a decision about future funding, which obviously they've put off until the other side of the present inquiries into RTE. Um, but you mentioned there that you, you sort of, you foresee RTE being a very stripped back, stripped down version of what it currently is. Does that to me, does that thing, does that mean, blah, 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 let's get the words out. Do you think that there is still a role for commercial income in that? Or is it is it ultimately going to be entirely publicly funded or what do you think? Well, I, 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 you see, if, and at the outset, I wrote a front page story as well where, where we'd spoken to people in, um, in, in at the top of government who will make these decisions. If you separate, pub, which Leo Varadkar has subsequently said publicly, if you se separate public sector broad, um, broadcasting and commercial, one would think they're then warehoused. If you look at today's poll and look at the, the performances of senior executives in that organisation and other people over the last few weeks, yeah. how can they then be trusted to run commercial? And then you would have to ask logically, why would they run commercial operations? And at the outset, there was there was talk in government about selling off Network Two, to selling off Two FM. These these issues have been dealt yeah. with in the in the past. They've been looked at in the past. And I actually think 
it could be uh, it could be a wonderful um, progression for RTE and other aspects of, of journalism. Maybe, God forbid, commercial organisations around the country might look at rebalancing editorial and commercial in their operations because ultimately, um, this radio station, my newspaper. Uh, other operations can only sell their advertising based on quality editorial work. And that seems to be, have become skewed in mm. RTE and probably in other organisations. Um, you, you, you look at the current situation in RTE and all this money is washing around the place. We're speaking to colleagues journalistic colleagues, journalist colleagues in, in RTE. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The money's not going into, into current affairs in the first place. You know, it's not going there. Where is it going? It's it's involved in this big scheme to fund high-paid broadcasters, in many cases who aren't journalists. <clears throat> many cases are journalists, and that's fair enough. We had Moya Doherty speaking there recently. I can't remember which hearing I was sitting at, but she was talking about the charisma of, of, of certain performers. Yeah. You know, that is not... In the modern era of 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 um, multimedia, a consideration that it was thirty years ago. So I think rapidly as well. I don't think we could be waiting on government inquiries and everything else. There has to be a redressing of the balance in in, in RTE and a questioning of so many activities there, which they have publicly been aired, have to be stripped away and stripped mm. away quickly. And we might actually have an organisation that involves itself in in warehoused, un, uninfluenced. Um, current affairs and reporting like it does so well in, in many cases now and all the other things they do that you know that, that a lot of commercial organisations won't do like mm. covering commemorations and, and yeah. covering elections we all cover elections but they do them very they, well They do them at an extent that yeah. no other private sector media operator can do Valerie your yeah. thoughts on that before I go to Yeah work? I'm just not sure about the charisma thing I think probably Tuberty is I think it's the Peter Pan of Irish broadcasting you know I'm doing it right across the the board with children, with adults and so on. But there's an interesting piece here I found from Kieran Gary. uh, In the Sunday Times. Yeah, in the Sunday Times. He says, it's clear editorial and commercial factors don't mix. And then he says, people have short memories. What about all those great toy show episodes? All those late, late shows carried out via Zoom without a live audience. He may not be to everyone's taste, but his unrelenting positivity through the tough pandemic years was surely worth some credit in the bank. Seemingly not. And, you know, that is the reason, I think, that people are so upset, so hurt about what Mm. has happened, because they'd almost hitched their star to Ryan Tuberty. He was kind of the uncle of the nation. And the other thing we've got to remember, it's not just a question of if Tuberty goes back, if he gets his job back. It's a question of all the rest of the staff in RTE getting back to a normal way of working, getting back their own working lives, because there's been appalling disruption. I mean, it's it, twice in the last few weeks, the staff have come out to protest. That's unheard of in RTE. Yeah. And, you know, talking to people there, they're very angry, but they're very hurt. And I think we have to aim to get everything cleared and back to normal as soon as possible if the organisation is going to function properly. Mm. Uh, Uncle of the Nation is a very nice title for Ryan Tuberty that I haven't heard <laughs> up until now. But I, I think that the, the credit in the bank that you mentioned, I think, is the reason why I sat here a few months ago and I speculated that he might go from being Uncle of the Nation to Head of the State. Uh, we'll see what happens in that because people do uh, sometimes decide to dispense some things and, and remember others. So we'll see on what front that goes. Uh, we're going to draw a line under um, our discussion of RT stuff. There is plenty in the papers if you want to get your teeth into it. There's lots more there. Uh, we're going to be turning our attention uh, with John and Valerie to plenty of other things when we're back after this. Still joined in studio to discuss what's in the papers by John Lee and Valerie Cox, but also joined on the line by Paddy Agnew from Rome. Paddy, um, no surprising in guessing what we might be asking you to talk about because it has been 
pretty sweltering all across southern Europe. A heat wave dubbed by many as Cerberus because he was a three-headed hound who guarded the gates of hell. And if that isn't a, a quite literally a demonic uh, way of trying to refer to the heat wave, then I don't know what is. Um, how is it where you are right now? Well, the Italians call this uh, La Settimana del Caronte, which is the week of Caron, who's the uh, ferryman who uh, ferries souls across the river Six to Hades, to the uh, underworld where the, the welcome awaiting them is pretty hot and fiery. Uh, and uh, they say this is going to be a hot and fiery week indeed. Uh, there are predictions this will be the hottest ever week in Italian history with temperatures of up to uh, 46, 47, 48 expected in, in parts of southern Italy. Wow. Um, I mean, we, we often think of this through very Irish sensibilities and we think about what it must be like to be going as a tourist to 46, 47, 48. How are the locals dealing with it? Because as you say, if this is the hottest week that Italy has ever had, then this isn't just the sort yeah. of thing you become acclimatised to. No, you don't. I mean, we, it, uh, a fellow who was out painting the uh, zebra crossing in Milan the other day uh, collapsed and died, a 44-year-old man. Uh, it, it, the heat is a killer, something like uh, 18,000 people, according to uh, Nature uh, Medicina uh, magazine, uh, killed uh, by heat-related illness in uh, 2022. So it, it's a serious business. The way Italians deal with it is you try and stay out of it. You know, you uh, you get up early, you open up the house, you let the fresh air in, uh, and then as soon as the sun gets up, which is, you know, by by nine o'clock or so, you shut everything up, shut the windows, shut the, uh, shut the shutters and keep the heat out as if it was, uh, you know, an ice blowing down from the Antarctica. Wow. Uh, what is the civil response to all of this? Because I presume that there is only a certain amount that governments can do to try and protect people in the midst of all this. No, I mean, the, the uh, civil response is very obvious. It's... Uh, telling people to uh, drink as much as possible, which is uh, the thing is for people that ad nauseum all over the, uh, the world. And um, basically, don't, uh, don't move around if you don't have to. And if you can, stay out of the sun uh, from, you know, from late morning to early evening. You know, only, only mad dog things when they're out in that sun. Mm. Um, what has the Italian media discussion been like about this because as it happens this week it's been very wet and very wild it's been very unsummary in Ireland but of course it does kind of beg questions as around our climate future has it kicked off that kind of discussion in Italian society about whether there's anything that can be done to try and stop this from running out, running out of control entirely yeah Gavin of course it has because uh, this has been a very strange year so far we had uh, a, a relatively mild, indeed very mild winter. Uh, we had possibly the, not possibly, definitely the worst ever uh, May on record. It had rain all through May. Uh, and then we had the hottest June on record. And now we're heading for the hottest uh, temperatures ever. So, uh, you know, if this isn't climate change, uh, what is? Uh, what is the, the long-term outlook, Paddy, beyond this week? I mean, are, are people, are they even able to think beyond this week or is this week as the hottest one ever? Is that just uh, occupying everyone's thoughts for now? Everyone, you know, it's, it's more the second uh, thing you said there. People want to get through this week because it looks like it could be uh, the hottest uh, week in the year. Although, I mean, August sometimes is just as hot as uh, July. So uh, we'll wait and see. 
Right. Well, Paddy, mind yourself. Uh, I can't imagine like you, you've been there a long time, but I can't imagine this is comfortable for, for anyone who's had to put up with this for, for the medium term. So do mind yourself and I hope um, everyone around you um, stays well. That's Paddy Agnew joining us from Rome, uh, talking about the hottest week that Italy will likely ever have uh, this coming week. Uh, temperatures of 46, 47 and prospectively up to 48 degrees uh, Celsius. Um is a pretty stark contrast to what we're looking at outside of our windows uh, here in Dublin this Sunday morning. Um, Still joined in the studio by John Lee and Valerie Cox, as I said, going through what's in this morning's papers. Um, John, I'm very struck by that uh, front page piece on the Business Post, uh, some FOI documents that they've obtained. Um, Correspondence between Stephen Donnelly and Pascal Donoghue. Uh, Pascal Donoghue, obviously the Minister in Charge of Spending. Uh, Stephen Donnelly, the Minister in Charge of Health. And even as long ago as four months ago, um, Pascal Donoghue warning that the HSE overrun was an unprecedented level of financial risk. And when you think about the financial risks that the state has faced in recent memory, the idea that this is an unprecedented risk is pretty striking. It is. At first glance, you think it's a a hardy annual like increasing um, temperatures in Europe uh, that the Department of Public Expenditure and the Department of Health get into a row over bloated uh, Department of Health budgets. But... um, when you read into it, the language is pretty is pretty unprecedented. All right, that um, Pascal Donahue uh, has has taken. Now, Pascal Donahue must be remembered has only come into this area public expenditure since Christmas. Yeah, has taken over control of the 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 agency that in many ways controls capital spending and and during the exchange rather than confront Mr. Donahue's concerns over bloated and um, escalating spending at the Department of Health. Stephen Donnelly asks, well, I actually need a lot more money for mm. a few projects, including the National Children's yeah, Hospital. But, but if, if that's to deliver projects that the entirety of government has signed off on, then he can understand when he says, well, if you want us to be able to do all of this, then we're going to have to pay for it. If you want new elective hospitals and everything else, that's going to cost us. Well, the air of unreality here is that um, Fine Gael has run a, a financial strategy and tactics uh, in Ireland for 12 years now. Mm. Um, principally, it's been uh, Fine Gael ministers have been the Minister for Health, where they have repeatedly uh, ignored um, pleas to get uh, Department of Health spending and HSE spending under control. And you know yourself working in the Oireachtas, Gavin, there is this air of unreality every year when it comes to health spending because ultimately we have a budget in October. There's a whole discussion and then the HSE is bailed out every year with a Mm. multi-billion euro allocation or multi-million as well. Mm. So what exactly um, Mr. Donoghue is expecting now um, from these very well obtained documents we see in the Business Post that Fine Gael has allowed um, uh, uh, health spending to spiral out of control over 12 years and rapidly he now expects Stephen Donnelly to get it under control he probably would say well I'm only working a strategy has been laid mm. down over the decades at this stage so then do you read into it a political um, a, a undercurrent to it that Fine Gael and, and Fine Fall, uh, certainly from Fine Gael's point of view are planning to make some kind of breach yeah. in the coming months over here, listen. You know we're trying to get this stuff under control, and Finna Fall just keep blowing the money in areas. Yeah, I'm sure people could point to not. Leo Varadkar's tenure in health and say, "Well, here, listen, we were exceeding the budgets those times too." Um, I like. Do you remember how uh, it, this isn't terribly long ago? Do you remember when uh, Paul Reed was appointed as chief executive of the HSE and his one overarching mission, his one North Star? But what, while COVID was still only a twinkle in some Chinese 
bat eye or laboratory, depending on your theory, was that um, the HSE has to be made to operate within its budgets. And everything was so oriented around making sure it worked within its financial envelope. And then 2020 happened. And then look where we ended up. He was nearly brought in from Fingal County Council, I think it was his yeah. previous job. S- to, singularly to, to make sure we were hitting the budgets. To start running yeah. this place like a, a normal operation. Yeah. It certainly hasn't worked. Um, Valerie, and you have your, your red pen out where you're looking at this bread <laughs> in the business post where you're, you're, you're picking out some choice quotes. Uh, one thing that really strikes me is that um, Pascal Donoghue was writing to Stephen Donnelly in March to say your overspend is an yeah. unprecedented risk. And Stephen Donnelly doesn't actually address that, but then writes to him in May to say, can I have 6.4 billion euro more, please? Yeah. Which is no, it's, it's actually, it's remarkable. a very good piece um, from Daniel Murray. And he has itemised the individual letters and what was happening. But I mean, there's some other information in this, which I, I thought was very interesting. Um, the health tapes investigation, that was last year in the Business Post. Yeah. And that detailed concerns by the Department of Health officials over a horror of waste and an inability to track money in the HSE or hold it accountable for how its budgets are spent. And then if you look at another article here, um, also from Daniel Murray, um, you're talking about medical negligence claims against the state. Mm. And of course, this would make up part of the Department of Health's budget as well. Now, it's not the biggest. It's 35% of all the claims against the state. But I mean, there's now at the moment, there's 11,204 active cases open against the state. And the total liability for claims it's almost 5 billion made up of 3.39 billion clinical claims and then there's 1.1 yeah. billion general so claims. 3.4 billion euro for, for, for what people are alleging is basically like medical mis- negligence or, or whatever. Like I don't know what, I mean, probably yeah. some serious and some maybe mischievous, I don't know. Mm. But what they're also doing is they're trying to sort this out um, without going to court. So there's a mediation service and that's encouraged. But it also means that we're not getting details and we're not learning. I mean, if people go into court, it's written up and we know that somebody either had a genuine mishap or, you know, they took a case that was a bit mischievous. But um, they quoted um, Dr. Rona Mahoney, the former master of uh, Hall Street. And um, she said, you know, the health related claims have managed to rise by 500 percent since 2010. You know, it's a huge amount of money, a huge rise. And I think possibly we need a lot more investigation into that. Mm. Yeah, Stephen Donnelly has, has voiced some concern about that before at a, a few Rockless committees, I think I can remember covering myself. Um, this is a, a long time to go without discussing the big children's hospital shaped elephant in the room, John. A couple of bits and pieces around the papers on that. I mean, it's... <laughs> Obviously, there's two sides to it. So the the, the builders say uh, that the hospital board keep changing the design, that therefore this obviously then delays things. You can't do the job until you have a, a workable design. The board says, well, actually, no, BAM haven't presented us with a programme by which they can actually get all the jobs done. It was supposed to be finished last November. It was supposed to be 1.433 billion. Now it could be another possibly 12 months away, if not more. It could cost another three quarters of a billion more. Uh, when, when are we going to know like where the fault lies on this? I think the fault. I, I have a piece. It's 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 well in the paper on, on page sixteen in the mail. And this um, Stephen Donnelly himself raised at cabinet recently the tendering process that the government had involved itself in. So that goes back to the the contracts the government signed. They, bam, the developers are only uh, obtaining money that they they feel they agreed with the government yeah. at the outset. And essentially, to put it in layman's terms, a, 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 across the board, say, in, in tendering, some groups make a tender, 
they low ball it on price but they will make back some of the money on penalties and their their complex you know um amounts of money they obtain for delays or or, or other issues yeah but far be it for me to have an overview of it all when we look at the spending of the Department of Health and the discussions that go on between ministers. If you listen to people like Frank Francis Fukuhama, he was discussing this in a podcast I listened to recently, that a great failing of centrist liberal democracies is, is has become their failure to execute um, infrastructure projects and other um, other aims because of the amount of systems and and blockages they have set up themselves in the system. So we've built this bureaucracies is, and if we weren't liberal democracies we'd just decide to build it ourselves and not outsource it and that'd be easier. And this is the in many uh, in many ways a reason for the rise of populist um, leaders across the world because they, they promise they will now sweep away all of this. And what we're seeing here is, is, is there isn't an overarching credo in this government or previous governments probably where they can say okay why can't we build houses why can't we build a hospital here without without getting into silly amounts of money that ultimately are are, are creating a project that has caused such a a drain in state resources that it, it, it almost over overshadows all the good that will be done by a children's hospital mm. um so what there isn't is a, a, a fundamental control on spending. And certainly when it comes to the children's hospital, there, there, there's no air of that at all. Mm. And I don't believe they don't have a final figure. If it's to no. be completed, as no. they're saying, in September 2024, yeah. anyone will tell you they've got to know what it's going to cost. And obviously it's far higher than the two billion. Well, here's a funny thing. Being told. So the, the Hospital Development Board were before the Oireachtas Health Committee this week, um, Valerie, and they said, we have made our pitch to the government. We're not going to tell you what it is because we don't want to give the builder a target or they, we don't want them to know how deep our pockets are. But we've made our pitch to the government because we believe now we know what it's going to cost to do it. And I then spoke to some figures within government who said, no, we don't. We can't even contemplate an application for money until the builder has presented us with a plan for how they're going to yeah. deliver it. So there even seems to be a dispute between the government and the hospital board as to whether they've even asked for the money. Very much so. It looks as if the two are not even talking at times. But, you know, I'm not an accountant, but having read John's analysis this morning, I feel you quite feel like expert <laughs> in this regard. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's... Um, it's a ridiculous situation. We're the laughingstock of Europe at this stage. We have two ministers, Harris and Donnelly, who deserve to be fired over this because all they were doing, they were asked to plan a children's hospital, get the tenders, build the hospital and here's all the millions you want. And what do they do? They drag it on because they simply didn't make the right decisions, maybe governance decisions in the very beginning. Mm. If you have that kind of money to spend, you can invite anybody in to tender. But you don't go on with all of this nonsense, which we're going on with at the moment and more tenders coming in. And will we re-tender? We are nearly at, the, you know, probably four-fifths of the way through at this stage. And to be doing that now is ridiculous. And we've got to look beyond that and say, look, they were given this money. They've messed it up. Loads of civil servants have messed it up as well. And yet we have these hundreds of children who were children when the hospital was originally tended for. Sure, now they're nearly all teenagers. Mm. It's an absolutely ridiculous situation that as a community, as a country, that we haven't got enough experts to put that hospital in place without making a mess of it. Um, I don't mean to at all detract from that point, but I should just say for full disclosure that uh, when Valerie says that Simon Harris and Stephen Donnelly should have been fired, that you did contest the last general election against them. I did against them, yes, yes. (laughs) Which I feel I should just put out there in case people think that we're trying to suppress. They have done other good work, but in particular in relation to the hospital, 
um, you know, I'm laying the blame yeah. not just at their doors, but lots of other people as well whose names I don't know. I think one of them texted <laughs> in there, did they? Uh, well, so people have been texting in about the future of Ryan Tuberty, would you believe? Because uh, some people still have an appetite for this doll to be thrashed out. Uh, one person says, uh, his positivity during COVID, he was negotiating an under-the-table deal while telling the rest of us to make sacrifices. Hypocrite, <laughs> says one texter. And somebody else says, can people please stop this veneration of the toy show? It was nothing more than one long advertisement and fairly crass at that, considering so many people couldn't afford the products on show it should have aired on QVC not a state broadcaster uh, other uh, <laughs> other satellite shopping channels are available uh, much more on that front uh, with Valerie and John when we're back after this we were actually we were going to talk about high politics actually but Valerie um, you've made such a compelling case about picking out that piece uh, from today's <laughs> mail but you know what? let's jump, jump straight to that and, and this is the question when I saw the headline this morning I thought I would not want uh, that going off anywhere near me because my kids are sometimes still asleep at that hour of the morning. Uh, a question being asked by a headline in the Mail on Sunday today. Yeah, is it okay to mow your lawn at <laughs> eight o'clock on a Sunday morning? It's a very important, serious poll, Gavin. You have to take this seriously because you've got people like you and exhausted parents who this is their only day to lie in. And mm. at eight well, o'clock... Well, not on a Sunday for me, unfortunately. But well, yeah. no, no, but in general terms, yeah, you know. Mm. And it could be Saturday or Sunday, but mm. um, they're asking, is it too early to cut the lawn at eight o'clock? Absolutely. Yes, next question. I mean, manners, come on. When you hear a lawnmower going and then you hear people chopping wood and people cursing and yelling at the kids to help or whatever. Absolutely appalling behaviour on a Sunday morning. Nobody should be allowed to even take the lawnmower out until 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And it has to be put away early. There are reports here of people cutting their lawns up to 10 o'clock at night mm. with the, the bright evenings. You're not allowed to do that either. By 10 o'clock, you should either be in bed or sitting down having a cocktail and admiring your lawn. That's what it says. Uh, on a building site, uh, at least in Dublin, you are allowed to work weekdays between 7am and 6pm and on a Saturday between 8 and 2. No works on Sundays or bank holidays. That suggests that under the official guidance, it would be okay to mow your lawn at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning, if that's the measure of the noise hazard. No, but if if that's the measure of like noise hazard and the inconvenience that it has in a residential area, it's suggesting that it's still okay to mow your lawn at eight o'clock on Saturday. That to me is still too early as well. It's far too early. I mean, it's just absolutely outrageous because people are trying to get a lie in and you don't do that. Maybe they're listening to Paddy Agnew, you see, maybe get out and do these things earlier Mm. because of the increasing heat. Uh, if you Not are here. if Not you here. are a psychopath who believes that it's okay to mow your lawn before eight o'clock any day of the week, uh, do let us know. Oh eight seven fourteen hundred one zero six. I am genuinely fascinated as to what rationale you think there might be for it being acceptable to mow your lawn before uh, those hours. Uh, Somebody texts in to say that in Denmark, you are not allowed. uh, There are clearly some rules in Nordic Ah. society. In Denmark, you are not allowed to mow your lawn before 9am or after 7pm. After 7pm with our working hours will be kind of tricky enough because often on on a summer's evening, after seven o'clock might be the only chance you actually get to get yeah, a clear word of the lawn. It's not a good time to do it as well. I, mean, I think in Denmark they probably even have longer evenings than us in the summer, don't they? Yeah, but they probably get somebody else to mow it for them. But Denmark, again, back to Francis Fukuyama, he'll tell you that's the best country on earth to live yeah. in for a democ- fans of democracy. Uh, somebody inevitably points out that the Burj Khalifa in Dubai cost one and a half billion to build and that was nearly one kilometre high. I wonder what BAM would charge to build that building, <laughs> uh, says one unimpressed uh, correspondent to 87 106 Somebody else says the contractor clearly got the price wrong at the start and they shouldn't have been awarded the contract. Both sides are at fault. The public sector contract also promotes a contentious contract 
contractual relationship between both parties uh, that needs fixing. Uh, which is interesting insight, actually, that if the whole structure of how all this is done nearly uh, promotes there being kind of antagonism or tension between the two sides, it's a, it's an interesting question as to whether that ought to be revisited. Um, on more formal issues, um, John, there is a party political opinion poll uh, in today's Sunday Times. And I find this fascinating because there has been this perception, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but this perception that the next election will be fought on the basis of get the shinners in or t- keep the shinners out. And Fidegwell always wanted to be at the vanguard of keeping the shinners out. Now it turns out that they're five points behind Fianna Fáil, which I find very striking. Yeah, and there's and I presume this washes down to the grassroots as well. There, there's an increasing discussion in Leinster House about the next government, which is where they all aim, and uh, their agreement among certain people that it, it'll be Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin. And if you look at the figures here... Um, it's 34-24. Fianna Fáil have taken a big jump to th- um, to plus three, by three to 24%, mm. which is rather in- interesting because we're going into a summer period now where government parties traditionally had increased in their in, in yes. their popularity because they're not doing that, they're not yeah. seize them. So <laughs> that's a good, that's a big, big boost for, for Micheál Martin. If you think about this time last year, we kind of forget a, a year ago that he was been talked about, there was, talks of heaves there was meetings of his of his public representatives in Leinster House to discuss his future he was seen as assailed and I don't know what I can't remember what age he is now 62 but you can nearly call him the comeback kid where here we are this week uh, <laughs> elsewhere in the papers yeah. um, discussing his future um, defection to Europe such as his popularity yeah you've been writing about this for the last couple of weeks that there's, there's speculation that he could prospectively be the next president of the European Commission he could be taken over from Ursula von der Leyen Often speculation for people who want to see him gone. But well, we love um, the, the national parlour game of big job in Europe for one of our fellas. Like it's a national pastime, isn't it? Well, like he he's left with he's le- left with a bit of a quandary that you know there will have to be a time for him to move on. Um, and if if there is the opportunity to move to Europe, uh, I think he would take it. One one has to look at his cho- choice of the Department of Foreign Affairs. Uh, in the position he has mm. uh, taken now, it's, it's a launchpad to something different. Maybe, and it's yeah. also arguable that he's been a, he's had a greater success in the changeover, the tricky changeover between Tonish and Taoiseach than Leo Varadkar has, for instance. So, yeah, should he take it? Finna mm. fall then have a ch- time to choose leader um, for the next general election, and on they go. But when you look at these figures, it is very marked that Fine Gael are down one to nineteen percent. Finna fall are are up three to um, 24%. Yet the Taoiseach has become again Leo Varadkar. One expected there in, in their party. Yeah. They mm. expected a boost in their popularity because of the higher profile. It's gone the opposite way. And again, I say it, um, you know, I, I, I live in a house with the Fianna Fáil um, public rep. Mm. We, we uh, can disagree very strongly on politics and, and get on pretty well. Um, these figures indicate. Well, I hope you get on pretty well if you're married to her. You know? Do you want to tell us anything? <laughs> well, see, the fear with Sinn Fein would be from a lot of people is that you know they are criticised in some quarters, probably myself as well, in some pieces as being fanatics. Unfairly, I think. Um, what these figures are proving is that they, a lot of people think they aren't fanatics and they can cohabit with people. The the definition of politics, successful political. Um, mm. success in this country is that people can talk to each other and Fianna, Sinn Féin will need coalition partners and if they can get on pretty well with Fianna Fáil TDs and senators like I see them do in Leinster House 
there's yeah. an option there for the government. Yeah, there's always a certain amount of uh, panto in sort of the public antagonism. Um, uh, I should say, by the way, like people, uh, and after I mentioned that Valerie Cox had contested the last general election as against Messrs. Donnelly and Harris. As he reminded me off air. Well, that so was no, it. No, I forgot a, a, those a, a, correspondent, a, a correspondent on the text machine asked me to remind the people on air that John is married to a Fianna Fáil <laughs> senator. And of course, uh, husbands and wives never disagree on anything like Saipan or Tom Petty. Kira <coughs> yeah. yes. Riley listening at home this morning. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left, Valerie, and you've, you've picked out an interesting piece in the Sunday Times about the the very slow burning exodus uh, from Leicester House already yeah, of a lot of people deciding that um, they're they're not for the next Yeah, election. it's actually independent. I found this and it's a piece from oh, Sandin Maloney. And um, uh, Shauna Freel, uh, the Cian Corla, was saying, um, the cynics will think we're off on our long holidays as they always do. You know and I know that people will be working assiduously in their constituencies. We're at a point in the electrical in the electoral cycle where tensions are beginning to build. And certainly when we come back in September, the temperature, I suspect, would be a little bit higher than it is. So really, um, than it is now. So really, um, what he's talking about is the fact that we are going into election mode, really, when they come back in the autumn. And it's interesting because there's a lot of bad things happening. Um, things like insurance prices are particularly high. Personal disposable income, he reckons, is going to be the main tipping point. But it's also very interesting because unless they turn around and do something for the most vulnerable sectors in society, the homeless and older people who are still trying to get by on that awful pension. You know, at the moment, I think we would need to put a great deal of money into the state pension to try and get people back on an even keel to be able to buy food and electricity and energy and be okay for all of that. So various ministers, he or various TDs, he suggests, are going to be thinking of going. I mean, we know already that uh, Breed Smith is going and I think she's done that really to yeah, um, give a bit of make make the space for the exactly next and to give a bit of yeah. a bit of a run and a bit of publicity to her. So it's going to be very interesting to see. Um, there you is know, the constituency redraw coming as well, which I think right. is yeah. interesting that that, that end, might end cause of August quite a few. That, that might cause quite a few people to to consider their opinions as well. Uh, Jim has been in touch, by the way, to say that on the comparison between the Children's Hospital and the Burj Khalifa, uh, we must remember that skilled workers on the Burj Khalifa only made about five euro a day, and labourers earned around three euro a day, which of course course, uh, is a very important point. Uh, and on the apparently lightning rod topic of uh, when it's acceptable to mow your lawn. <laughs> I have lived in China, says one texter, and other parts of Asia. The day starts at a half four in the morning and the evening is a very busy time. Uh, says this texter in a follow on. It's hard to get a quiet moment. Could you imagine mowing the lawn at half past four in the morning? Um, cocktails all around, I think, at that hour. Uh, Valerie Cox, uh, Valerie Cox and uh, John Lee, thank you both very much for going through the Sunday papers. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.